With more than half a million men, women and children forced to take to the roads and flee, the situation is desperate. They have nowhere to go and must fend for themselves without resources. Newspapers around the world are reporting that war is breaking out between Rwanda and Zaire. This report in the French newspaper Le Monde continues. At the same time, the rainy season heightens the risk of malnutrition and epidemics. On Monday, 28th of October, a UNHCR spokesperson said, a humanitarian catastrophe of greater dimensions than the one in 1994 could occur in the Great Lakes region. The battleground is in eastern Zaire, around one of the Great Lakes, Lake Kivu, where MSF Holland have been working with local communities for the past three years. As we heard in episode one, most of the refugees in eastern Zaire are Hutu civilians who left Rwanda when the Rwandan Patriotic Front took over the government after the genocide of Rwandan Tutsis in 1994. But hiding among the refugees are many of the criminal perpetrators of the killings, and it's these people who are starting to attack the local Zairean Tutsi. There was actually one village that we worked with and there were about 5,000 people in that village and it was totally surrounded by the Hutu. So people felt that they couldn't go out of their village because when they did go out to go to their fields where they got their food, um, many of them got killed. In retaliation, the Zairean rebel opposition group, the Alliance of Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Congo Zaire, is in turn attacking the Rwandan Hutu refugee camps. Although not public yet, this group, the AFDL, has the backing of the new Tutsi majority regime in Rwanda. They want to try and quash the threat posed by the Hutu extremists who've been coming out of the camps to kill Zaire and Tutsi in the region. But nothing is being done to separate the criminals from the Hutu civilians. So now, in late October 1996, Hundreds of thousands of Rwandan Hutu refugees are walking through the rain, carrying everything they own. They're back on the road again just two years after fleeing Rwanda, and this time they're joined by local Zairean people caught up in the fighting and forced to leave their homes in the rural Kivus. The Kivu regions of Zaire are mountainous and mostly covered in rainforests. The majority of refugees are heading for the capital of North Kivu, a city named Goma. But more than 700,000 people have already settled in and around Goma in recent months. Days pass and more and more refugees arrive in the overcrowded city. As the instability of the region increases, MSF and other humanitarian organisations are eventually forced out of eastern Zaire entirely. But MSF suspects that thousands of refugees are suffering and at risk of dying in these new, larger refugee camps in the cities, where food supplies are running dangerously low and most lack even basic health facilities. Many at MSF believe the situation is only about to get worse, based on the organisation's previous experience in similar conflicts. In this episode, we'll look at the dilemmas MSF faces trying to help a huge group of people they can't see in a region they can't work in. We ask, when MSF has no access to the refugees themselves, can and should the organisation publicly extrapolate from the condition of refugees and their potential health needs what their fate might be? On the other hand, given the lack of access, should MSF refrain from making predictions that will be picked up in the media? This 
is Speaking Out, The Hunting and Killing of Rwandan Refugees in Zaire, a podcast by MSF. I'm Nick Owen. Episode 2, Information War over Refugee Numbers. Today, we say enough. Even war has rules. Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. There should not be a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. On the 27th of October, 1996, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees calls for humanitarian corridors to get aid to the many Rwandan refugees and Zairean civilians who fled to Goma. But these corridors never materialise. Two days later, several states try to address the escalating crisis in eastern Zaire. UNICEF says half of the refugees in the Goma region are children under 15. MSF France issues a press release announcing their teams are helping to set up emergency clinics and health facilities in the Magunga camp, west of Goma, that has so far not been attacked. Meanwhile, Rwandan authorities continue to deny their Rwandan patriotic army is in the Kivus, fighting alongside the Tutsi Banyamalenge rebels in the alliance. The French newspaper Le Monde reports, If it's necessary to fight a war, I will do so declared General Kagame, the Rwandan regime's strongman, stating that, contrary to Zaire's repeated accusations, Rwandan troops had never fought alongside the alliance. However, he did not exclude such a possibility. Depending on how the situation develops, I do not know if the Rwandan army will become involved in eastern Zaire, he added. As the refugees are pushed out of the camps by violence, MSF and the other humanitarian organisations working in the Kivus follow them to Goma. Goma is currently the only city in eastern Zaire where MSF is able to provide aid, but now even that looks under threat as the situation is escalating fast. On the 31st of October 1996, MSF calls for a safe zone to be set up that's protected by an international force. Another press release from MSF France the same day denounces the lack of action from world leaders. The international community should focus on creating a safe space where civilians would have access to aid. However, the only measures underway concern the arrival of a special UN envoy in the region. After the US elections, a regional conference should also be held, but a date has not yet been set. In the past, Diplomatic manoeuvres were only pretexts for inaction in the field, which led to one million deaths in 1994. Will Clinton, Chirac and Major be as irresponsible and ineffective as Clinton, Mitterrand and Major were at the time of the 1994 genocide? Every day lost results in thousands of deaths. Later that day, violent shelling at Goma's Mugunga camp forces the last MSF team to take refuge with other humanitarian aid workers in the UNHCR compound in Goma. The next day, the Rwandan Patriotic Army enters Goma. There's no denying the new Rwandan regime is now involved. The English newspaper, The Guardian, reports. Rwandan government troops in uniform last night entered the eastern Zairean town of Goma dramatically escalating the political crisis in the region, where more than one million refugees are on the move. 
calls for a ceasefire and a regional summit by the UN, the European Union and aid agencies working among the refugees were dismissed by the main players, Zaire and Rwanda, yesterday. Last night, Tutsi rebels were battling for control of Goma's airport and the Médecins Sans Frontières aid charity said 100 aid workers, including six of its staff, had been stranded by the fighting. As Goma falls under the control of the alliance, Hutu refugees and some of Goma's Zairean population leave the city for their own safety. Many head west, further into Zaire. Over the next couple of days, the Rwandan president goes on Radio Rwanda to call on all Hutu refugees to return home. He's joined by the vice president and minister of defence, Paul Kagame, who's the strongman of the new Rwandan regime. On the 2nd of November, the last MSF staff managed to escape Goma. With potentially hundreds of thousands of refugees on the move in the region, MSF's operational sections debate whether to launch an appeal for armed international intervention in the Kivus. Dr Jacques de Miliano, president of MSF Holland and vice president of MSF International, writes a fax to all the presidents and general directors of MSF, warning, The last eyes and ears of the international community have left. And given the Kivu context, the actual broader Zairean context, and the regional Great Lakes context, this crisis will develop into a massive bloodbath for the civilian population. International action is needed now. Diplomacy on its own is too late and will not be effective in this context. Urgent international military action is needed now to create protected zones to protect the civilian population and limit the bloodbath, to guarantee access for humanitarian aid and to create conditions for solving the refugee problem in a human way. Samantha Bolton is the MSF press officer for the Great Lakes, stationed in the Rwandan capital, Kigali. She's tasked with writing a press release. I tried to write it and faxes were going day and night, you know, between Kigali, Nairobi, the headquarters. I don't remember exactly what all the sections were saying, but for sure Jacques de Miliano was pushing for an armed intervention. There were all sorts of discussions, you know, which were technical and military and legal issues, you know, what we could and couldn't say as a humanitarian organisation. But the biggest discussions were around whether or not we should call for a humanitarian safe corridor. Um, and then, you know, but then how do you explain that? Because we were all just so exhausted, you know, and I really felt like I just couldn't take it anymore because it had been going on for so long. A line for the press release is finally decided upon. MSF will call for an international military intervention and safe zones in the Kivus with set aims. These include guaranteeing access for relief agencies, ensuring protection for Hutu refugees and focusing assistance and protection for the Zairean population who are suffering from this conflict. They demand that all warring parties and criminal elements within the zone are disarmed and impunity for those responsible for the 1994 Rwandan genocide is ended by isolating and bringing the perpetrators to justice. MSF also wants this international force to guarantee the security of Zairians who want to take refuge in neighbouring countries and for Burundians and Rwandans who want to return home to be able to go back safely. MSF Holland's Jacques de Miliano is quoted in the release, saying, How many pictures of massacres and dying babies will it take before the heads of state and UN react? The insecurity and chaos in Zaire is so bad that there is nothing doctors and bandages or any other humanitarian assistance can do. 
I fear that precious time and lives are being lost to diplomacy and international hesitation. If no urgent political and military action is taken, the international community will face a repetition of the 1994 catastrophe, when a delayed humanitarian action replaced effective protection of the population. On the 4th of November, MSF experiences firsthand the new joined-up public relations strategy from Kabila's alliance and from General Paul Kagame in Rwanda. It's launch day for MSF's much-debated press release calling for armed intervention, and Jacques D'Emiliano is giving an exclusive interview to UK radio station BBC International ahead of the press conference. The interview's barely been broadcast when news breaks that an Alliance rebel leader in South Kivu is declaring a three-week ceasefire between the Alliance and the Zairean army. Jacques remembers the moment well. So it was a very important um, uh, press conference for MSF because asking for military intervention is an extraordinary measure. And we said, okay, let's do first an interview with the BBC so that uh, the moment we finish the press conference, then they can already launch our statement in the right wordings. So we did this interview with the BBC. And uh, actually what happened is that uh, when the press conference was finished and the BBC uh, immediately put our interview on air, 20 minutes later... The BBC uh, reporter came to us and said, your message is more or less blocked now because Kabila, the leader of the uh, Rebel Alliance, called the BBC reporter and said that he wants to create uh, humanitarian corridors and to create a kind of ceasefire. So this particular moment showed the close collaboration between Kagame in Kabila, in the Tutsi uh, rebels, let's say, in the, in the, also in the Masisi, in the sense that um, they did not want a military intervention. Eh? They wanted to deal with the problem themselves. And so our strong message was, was diluted by the, let's say, the intervention of Kabila. Between the 2nd and 5th of November 1996, the Alliance and the Rwandan Patriotic Army organised several so-called guided tours for the international press of the two Kivu provincial capitals, Goma in the north and Bukavu in the south. Samantha Bolton again. So, I mean, obviously a lot of the journalists, you know, like Christiane Annenpour, who came back to cover this story, had also been there in 94 when it was the genocide. So uh, the idea for the army and the government was, of course, to show all the improvement rights. So... Kigali would say, we're going to show you today how we have organized the army. That's the topic you should cover today. So they knew that the journalists had to turn in their stories, their cassettes, you know, by 5 p.m. And so the tours would start at 10 a.m. So, for example, that afternoon, they took them to see the soldiers who were all wearing new uniforms. And these were young Zairians who posed and said... I understand that everything is very good now. They're paying me. I have a uniform. This is the first time I've had a a pair of boots. Um, And that was more or less the script. And I remember all the journalists were delighted at the new level of organisation. By the 5th of November, Goma is under the control of the Alliance. A local radio station broadcasts a message from the rebels saying they aim to end the regime of Zairean President Mobutu to, quote, free all Zairians from the Mobutu dictatorship. 
The same day, representatives of countries in the Great Lakes area meet in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. They call on the UN Security Council to deploy a neutral force in Zaire to establish humanitarian corridors and temporary sanctuaries for the refugees. The International Committee of the Red Cross and UNHCR go some way towards joining MSF's call for an international military intervention by publicly raising the possibility of an armed force to deal with the mounting humanitarian disaster. MSF, meanwhile, starts recruiting personnel from its 19 offices around the world. Fearing the worst, their focus is on bringing in experienced emergency medical staff. Their press release that day reads, Two cargo planes, each loaded with 40 tonnes of material, left Europe today for Kampala, Uganda, to reinforce the supplies available to respond to the crisis in Zaire. The planes are carrying medical kits, shelters, sanitation supplies and vehicles. The UN announces that Zaire has agreed to allow a multinational force into the eastern part of its territory. But the Rwandan president's spokesperson tells the AFP news agency that Rwanda will not be used as a rear base for military help in eastern Zaire. I do not think it will be necessary for the force to have a presence on the Rwandan territory, even if it involves only a logistical presence at the Rwandan-Zaire border. The problem is not in Rwanda, but in Zaire. As a neutral force, it's supposed to go where the problem is. The information minister adds, Since Rwanda has announced it is prepared to accept its refugees, and since the camps and the border are only 300 metres to one kilometre apart, let refugee aid go directly to Rwanda. The same day, the general directors and operational directors of MSF operational sections meet in Amsterdam. They decide that the international emergency team will be coordinated and led by MSF Holland, since they've been the team working in the area the longest. MSF is given responsibility by UNHCR and the Rwandan government for setting up most of the temporary health stations in Rwanda in case of a massive influx of refugees. A UNHCR spokesperson reports that people arriving in Rwanda from Goma are saying that, quote, the refugees have begun dying like flies. Impatience is mounting among humanitarian agencies who still can't access the Rwandan refugees in Zaire. They're waiting for the UN Security Council to authorise an emergency intervention. MSF France's president sends a letter to the French president. Dear Mr President, because we cannot gain access to the Kivu region of Zaire, humanitarian organisations remain powerless to respond to the breadth of the tragedy currently unfolding in the Great Lakes region. With countries in the region closing their borders and Zairean authorities refusing to grant access to the area, we are effectively prevented from providing aid to displaced persons and refugees. Authorities in Zaire and Rwanda have blocked Médecins Sans Frontières teams from circulating for a week and for three days, respectively. We believe that the international community, and particularly France, must help humanitarian organisations gain access to these populations at risk of death by pressuring the bordering countries of Zaire, Rwanda and Burundi to accept the principle of unfettered circulation for humanitarian aid teams and protecting populations in danger and their access to humanitarian aid by sending international intervention troops. We are counting on France's determination to do everything in its power to bring a quick end to this new tragedy. Two days later, the debate over what form an international force in Zaire would take is still going on. 
The UN Security General, Boutros Boutros Ghali, recommends to the Security Council that an international intervention force be deployed in eastern Zaire. In a press conference the same day, the Rwandan Foreign Affairs Minister announces that they are prepared to accept an African-European force. But, he says, they must be absolutely neutral and must not involve France as they view the country as a backer of the previous Hutu regime. They do not want a repeat of the French-led Operation Turquoise in 1994 that aimed to create safe zones in the southwest of Rwanda but facilitated the escape of the perpetrators of the genocide. The Rwandan minister echoes his colleagues in calling for the Hutu refugees to return to Rwanda, saying they are prisoners and hostages who are being used as human shields by the perpetrators of the 1994 genocide. He says they accept the creation of humanitarian corridors for returning Hutu refugees and that villages in Rwanda would be organised to receive them. The Dutch and American sections of MSF put out a press release hailing this as the first step towards getting much-needed humanitarian aid to eastern Zaire. Tonight, an MSF cargo plane with 25 tonnes of relief goods consisting of drugs, medical materials, high-protein biscuits and blankets will leave the Amsterdam airport. On board, there will also be 13 MSF aid workers. The aeroplane will land in Kigali early Saturday morning. The team and the cargo will immediately be loaded on trucks and transported to the border. While the Rwandan government finally agrees to safe zones, there's still no progress from UNHCR. MSF teams are still blocked at the Zairean border and growing increasingly frustrated. MSF France puts out a press release titled Are 13,600 deaths insignificant? In it, they extrapolate the number of deaths likely to occur if humanitarian organisations do not gain access to the camps soon. It reads, We know from experience that in similar situations, 10 out of every 10,000 displaced people deprived of aid die every day. We can thus estimate that more than 13,600 people have died since the crisis began 21 days ago, not including deaths from killings, confirming the urgent need to create an international force to set up safe zones. Anne Guibert is MSF France's press officer. At that time, we were trying to renew the message in the media so that journalists would continue following the Rwandan refugee situation. And in fact, they were calling us saying, we don't have access to the other side. We would like to know what's happening there. What state are they in? And we said, we didn't know. We didn't have access to that area either. And then we thought that with our experience of this kind of crisis situation, we could share projections, figures that are usually used in similar situations to prepare crisis interventions. So with the medical department at MSF France, we looked for situations that could be compared that had similarities to calculate possible mortality rates. The criteria were, in which other situations could we find a population of hundreds of thousands of people who had access to aid in a camp for a while and then who were deprived of this aid for three weeks, a month, etc. And we applied these mortality rates and projected them over a period of time as well. This method was not in itself open to criticism because it was explained in the press release and precautions were taken to show that it was a projection based on situations that could be expected on the other side of the border. But when AFP picked up this information, 
Some caveats were left out, and they picked up on the fact that these are mortality rates that Médecins Sans Frontières is reporting. So the precautions that we'd taken were ignored, and these press releases were criticised very, very strongly, because in the end, the Rwandans in question on the other side of the border left in a better state of health than we'd projected. Later in the day, the director of MSF USA mentions the estimate during an interview on CNN. What begins as an extrapolated figure in a press release is turned into a firm count when reported on CNN and is quickly taken over as a fact by press agencies before being widely reported in all international media. Médecins Sans Frontières announced that more than 13,600 people have died in eastern Zaire over the last three weeks. Begins an AFP report on the 8th of November. The French newspaper Le Monde reads, The maths is simple. In 1994, when 800,000 Hutu fleeing Rwanda reached Goma, the city was at peace and humanitarian aid was immediate and massive. 40,000 people died of cholera then, Today, in a war situation, without food and medical aid, in the midst of the rainy season, cholera is there, says Jacques de Miliano, vice president of Médecins Sans Frontières International. The disease appears here in one week, as soon as health conditions decline. He looks at the lake and the volcano. The catastrophe is playing out there, under heavy clouds, without witnesses, without aid, without anything. Samantha Bolton, MSF press officer for the Great Lakes. I said to Jacques, you know, we've got a problem here. They're saying that according to MSF, thousands of people are dying every day. You know, what should we do? So we went back over the story. You know, we had to do damage control with the reporters and say that sometimes numbers get extrapolated, that we have no evidence for sure. Uh, you know, but then they were saying, oh, well, you're saying one thing and the director in New York is saying another. So we had a big problem. But I mean, to be fair, that often happens you know, in civil society organisations with so many different offices, you know, with different powerful press, for example, the US, the New York Press, London, etc., Paris, you know, your main thing from the field is to try and get everyone to agree. And we'd been fighting off the journalists and saying, we don't have data, we don't know at the moment, because we, did, we couldn't see all the refugees. So what happened is that you had a lot of epidemiologists and nutritionists, for example, writing in the case that, you know, if they have no food, if there are this many, if they haven't had access, you know, then this could be the possibility. So, yeah, but we had a big problem on this particular one because until then, MSF had had a lot of credibility. But at the time before, we were with the refugees and suddenly now we were just extrapolating on these people who were hidden in the forest, who were coming. We didn't really know what the situation was. MSF Holland president and MSF international vice president, Dr Jacques de Miliano. Samantha Bolton and myself, when we prepared the press conference before the MSF France um, message... We were reluctant to use precise figures because we could not enter in the refugee camps because we were blocked to go there. So, yeah, in our section, <laughs> we had a hard moment. At the beginning, MSF was not happy with the, uh, let's say in general, uh, but MSF France put the figure forward. We were caught by surprise that they put this precise figure on it. And so some people were angry, but my position was from this precaution principle to put the most pressure 
uh, on, on the international community to have this military intervention to happen, that yeah, you, you can defend the MSF France position. So let's say there are more uh, uh, roads going to Rome. And um, I think this was the more extreme one, let's say extreme in terms of uh, the most precise one, but there was a risk. And the risk was, of course, that the, the reality was different. But nevertheless, that's my personal interpretation. And also one of the streams in NMSF is that, yeah, uh, sometimes if you don't know, as a medical doctor, maybe yeah, sometimes you're obliged to think in worst case scenario. But we had a hard time. So we, we, we really, the press was so tough on this in terms of uh, the good guys, let's say MSF for uh, years. And suddenly we had to re-explain it each time. But I think it was short-sighted from the press because it, it went from good to bad. And there is a complete gray area. It was more complex and that we have seen afterwards. But, um, okay, we had a hard time and we had, to, we had to explain. Meanwhile, other sections of MSF are looking for new ways to get the attention of their governments. The American section collaborates with 20 other organisations in a joint press release to put pressure on their leaders. While in the UK, MSF joins Oxfam in writing a press release and an open letter in donated space in a daily newspaper. In it, they call the British government's hesitation in the face of an unprecedented humanitarian crisis in Zaire morally bankrupt. MSF UK's executive director. We had free space in the Times that we didn't want to use to raise money. We had this public space and we said to ourselves, we're going to use it. The rationale was ridiculous. We never should have followed it. We used the space to publish a joint letter with Oxfam. To my knowledge, it's the only one in the history of the organization. It was really outdated, and I take full responsibility. The Oxfam director should also share that responsibility. It didn't get a lot of press coverage, but it led to a lot of discussion. MSF and Oxfam together, that was pretty unusual. It was a short text. We called for humanitarian organizations to obtain access. Otherwise, so many people risked dying of hunger. One of the premises of the message was, we're doctors, and we have to make pessimistic projections because that's how it's done. Oxfam said, we know where all the water faucets are in the Goma area, so we know that the Rwandan army has access to faucet number one. Again, on this subject of pessimistic projections, we said to ourselves, if the water is cut off, which is the most effective way to cordon off the area, then there's a real danger for public health and also of obvious violence. Oxfam was completely cool about it. We made this appeal, which was typically a little irresponsible, but that's another story. You can debate endlessly whether this kind of thing is useful, but we publicly stated what we believed, more than the other organizations. While the others were saying, on the one hand, on the other, we said, we believe there are people in danger, and we demanded access. The conflict in Eastern Zaire sparks internal debates at MSF over which messages work in the media and the potential impact these can have on the public image and trust in MSF. But as the crisis deepens, MSF's largest concern remains the physical safety of people on the ground in the country and the impact these messages can potentially have on the organisation's ability to help refugees in need in Eastern Zaire. 
Next time on Speaking Out, the hunting and killing of Rwandan refugees in Zaire. The international community continues to dither over a UN resolution on a multinational force for humanitarian purposes. An intervention is delayed and delayed and then finally cancelled. And as the controversy over the so-called figures crisis deepens, MSF responds to criticisms in the media and questions its own processes for the future. One million people were dependent on food, water, healthcare, all was blocked. So then I think there is reason enough to present figures on a worst case scenario. Still, it are estimations, but the press took it as firm, uh, let's say, figures. And sometimes it's necessary to do it, otherwise international community, because that was the reality, the international community was not moving at all. This MSF podcast is based on an original MSF case study called The Hunting and Killing of Rwandan Refugees in Zaire, Congo, 1996-1997. It's written by Laurence Binet and is part of the Speaking Out Case Studies series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Laurence Binet, Martin Solnier, and Rebecca Golden Timsar. The narrator is Nick Owen. The extracts are read by Danielle Stagg and Matthew Wade. Additional voiceovers and readings are by Kathy Hewison and Alex Vincent. Music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Samantha Bolton, Anne Guibert, and Dr. Jacques Demiliano. To read the full study and discover other case studies, please go to our website, msf.org speakingout. Thanks for listening.